As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, something very big is happening in the crypto world. And it's not about like, it's not about lines going (laughs) up or down because so much of what excites me about crypto is that the lines move so much. That's fun. But there's something else and it's not strictly price related. The merge. The merge. merge. I feel like someone needs to make like a movie poster with the the merge merge written in creepy letters and make it look like an old horror movie kind of thing. But yeah, the merge is happening in Ethereum. Yeah, right. And so people have been telling us, oh, you got to have a merge episode. You know, there's so much (laughs) going on. We can't always get around to every topic. But this is like Ethereum is switching its consensus mechanism from proof of work, which is like kind of like Bitcoin mining, very energy intensive mining operation that most people associate with crypto to proof of stake. And so it'll be a different approach to creating and validating blocks. And they've been working on it for years and years and years, and it's finally happening. So I'm going to caveat this discussion with the fact that I haven't been following this very (laughs) intently. However, I do find it interesting because it gets to something that you wrote, I guess it was a year ago or so now, about, you know, the crypto world kind of splitting into these two different camps. Mm -hmm. And on the one side, you have people who are very into the technology. And technology, you know, one aspect of technology is that it it evolves, it changes. And so right. in that respect, this is Ethereum evolving and changing in a very big way. But the other camp in crypto are the sort of Bitcoin maximalists, yeah. the fundamentalists who don't want to see anything change about Bitcoin and the technology at all. I'm really glad you brought this up. I think that is spot on because there's this question of like, well, what is crypto? Is mm-hmm. it software or is it money? And I think there's like these two camps. And if it's software, right, or if it's if software is a really big component, then a part of software is upgrades, right? Upgrade mm-hmm. cycles. And, you know, it's like Microsoft might update its browser or something every year or something. And then at some point, they're like, the old browser will not be supported. You can't use it anymore, right? Right. Whereas the sort of like money stance, the sort of like hardcore Bitcoin view is, no, if you're going to like have money, You don't ever want to be told this money isn't good anymore or there's been a hard fork or there's been some sort of change to the network and you have to do something. You have to change something. You have to like update your software to use it. And I think these are like fundamentally very big things. And I think this this merge, this huge switch from sort of traditional mining to proof of stake is really important sort of culturally setting Mm -hmm. Ethereum 
apart from Bitcoin in its willingness to change the rules from time to time of the network. A touchstone moment for crypto. But it also gets to the idea of pros and cons mm -hmm. of different types of blockchains, right? So Ethereum is trying to solve one problem here, which, you know, might, for instance, be energy use, which a lot of people have focused on. A lot of crypto critics have focused on saying that mining wastes a ton of energy. So why don't we try to fix that? But on the other hand, does the new design come with its own set of problems? And we've already seen some noises around the idea of, well, maybe you're making it less censorship resistant, mm -hmm. and we're going to get into that. Yes. And so one of the developments over the last several weeks is the Treasury's sanctioning of Tornado Cash, which is a way for people to obfuscate their Ethereum transactions through a mixer. And it's the first time that the uh, Treasury has ever sanctioned a piece of software, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. But then it also raised the question, well, if they can sanction a piece of software, why can't they sanction Ethereum itself? Or can they tell Ethereum holders or Ethereum stakers in this new proof of stake mechanisms like oh, you, you're going to get in trouble if you process blocks from entities that are trying to launder money, etc. A whole new can of worms. It's always evolving. We're always <laughs> trying to keep up here on the podcast. So uh, let's try to learn some more about it. Let's do it. I don't even know what a validator is versus a miner. So either. let's get a into staker, it. a validator, a miner, a relayer, a holder. I don't know any of these words. So we're going to be talking to someone who does. I'm very excited to welcome to Odd Lots, Christine Kim. She is a research associate at Galaxy Digital, and she's been writing about these topics for Galaxy clients for a long time. So, uh, Christine, thank you so much for coming on. How did we do there in the intro? You know, this is like <laughs> foreign territory. Was that how did we do there? That was excellent. Um, I think we've already done. You guys have condensed this entire podcast and everything I wanted to talk. Oh, about we can in stop three now. Minutes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we can stop now. <laughs> Tracy and I like we st we we had a busy day. We started prepping about fifteen minutes ago, and I said, Tracy, like we're going to be talking about proof of stake, and Tracy turns to me like three minutes later is like, I think this is going to like create some centralization risk <laughs> for Ethereum. It's like, yeah, it sounds like you got it. But no, from your <laughs> thank you, <Tim. laughs> yeah, I was really impressed from your perspective. Christine, like, let's just start, like, how significant, like, is this moment for Ethereum? And like, what's the real goal? We know reducing energy consumption is part of it. But why don't you put this in context on the Ethereum roadmap for us? For sure. I think it's hard to understate just mm. how big or overstate, I should say, how big this upgrade is. The transition to proof of stake has been part of Ethereum's original development roadmap when the blockchain first launched in 2015. Developers had thought that this upgrade would be ready earlier in 2016, but due to the technical challenges of actually swapping out the consensus mechanism of Ethereum while it's live, um, brought forth delays. And so people have been asking for this upgrade. Developers have been working on this upgrade for around seven years now. And it's, it's truly... It, it was almost to the point where people had thought that Ethereum would never transition, that this that this transition to proof of stake was just a pipe dream. Hmm. Um, and so the fact that this is the week in which Ethereum will finally fulfill one of the promises that it had made to its users, its investors, back when it first launched, 
I think is is pretty monumental. And it's really not just about the changes to its energy consumption. I think another big change that people are really looking forward to is Ethereum's monetary policy switching from being an inflationary currency to potentially a deflationary currency. Hmm. The annual network issuance of the network is expected to drop from around 5% to less than 0.5%. And if you add in coin burns, which is like a new mechanism that that was introduced back in October, or I should say August, with EIP-1559, there is this there is a lot of excitement around Ethereum's issuance of the issuance of ETH and the supply of ETH actually contracting over time. With more activity on the network, you're going to see more ETH being burned and that impacting total supply. So I think that's another big part of it. It's like the the economics around ETH that's going to be changing after the merge. So I just want to ask one short question and make one point. We are recording this on September 13th. The merge, the event, is expected to happen in about a day. By the time you're hearing this, it should have happened. If it totally blows up or something, we might have to re-record the entire episode, or maybe we'll like put this out as an artifact of a history that might have been. But just a real quick technical question. This is called mm-hmm. the merge. Does that imply that the proof of stake, does the proof of stake Ethereum already exist and now the two networks are merging together? Like, is this this other chain that has a different consensus mechanism that's already operating? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the proof of stake blockchain of Ethereum has existed since I think it was December 2020. Um, It's called the beacon chain. And right now, a very small portion of ETH is issued on that parallel chain. And there's individuals and, and stakeholders that have already invested their money into that chain, the beacon chain. And for the merge, what's going to happen is that chain is going to become fused together with Ethereum mainnet today. But in the process of that change, all of the issuance that happens on Ethereum currently, which goes to miners, will disappear, will go to zero. And so the only issuance of ETH that you have left is to the validators that are on the beacon chain now. And that's really just a fraction of the total issuance that's, that's being generated today. So I have a ton of questions already. I'm also kind of hoping that our producer is able to put in like sound effects every time we say the merge. So it goes like the merge. I love that. Okay, on a serious note, can we back up for a second? And can you maybe describe the difference between proof of work versus proof of stake? And also how Ethereum got into a position where they have two different types of chains. So Beacon versus the normal Ethereum chain. And then also (laughs) on top of that, maybe to describe the difference between proof of work and, and proof of stake. Could you walk us through, like, how will a new Ethereum be created under this Mm -hmm. new regime? And what happens to the miners in this case? I started by asking two questions in a row so that now Tracy is asking (laughs) a three-part question. (laughs) You're uh, uh, going to have to remind me if I forget to answer one of those. Um, But let me start with just giving a broad overview of the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. That would be great. Um, And then... Okay, yes. And then and then we can go from there. Wow, I love the enthusiasm around this, though. I, I totally agree with you guys that like the merge is a really big event and like <laughs> educating people around how this is actually happening. And even the technicals beneath it, which sometimes can sound boring, is like really what's what's exciting. So I'm glad we're talking about this. But anyways, so I think it's, it's useful to start off with what is a consensus mechanism or a consensus protocol, because mm. that is... W- 
that is what a proof of work and a proof of stake blockchain is. It's basically, this is the mechanism that defines how nodes in a blockchain come to agreement about the state of the network. So what are the account balances, the transactions, the updated transaction history of the blockchain? There needs to be a way for all the computers that are connecting to the network, also called nodes, to be aligned about what the canonical history is. And so it's really about how do you process blocks on a blockchain? How do you finalize those transactions? And with proof of work, you do that in a very energy intensive way. You have these actors that are called miners that are solving a, a very computationally intensive math problem. These are called hash functions. And every miner is competing to be the first person to find the correct solution because that means that they get to build a block, include transactions in it, get the reward from the block. But for proof of stake, these actors, these miners are replaced by validators. And instead of solving that very computationally intensive puzzle, validators are voting on blocks and they're attesting to blocks and they just get randomly selected by the network according to an algorithm of who gets to be a block proposer. Mm. So on Ethereum, it's not that when once Ethereum transitioned to proof of stake, I should caveat, these validators are not competing. They're just randomly selected to to propose a block and they'll get rewards from that. They'll also get rewards from voting on blocks and attesting to the validity of those blocks. But the question is, why are these validators on Ethereum? How, how do we keep them honest? Because with miners, you've already expended so much computational energy. You've kind of input in a very high cost. You're not going to lose the chance to earn those rewards after you've sunk in a particular amount of cost. With validators, you haven't really sunk in anything. You haven't expended any energy to to vote or attest to blocks or to propose blocks. If you did, it's it's very negligible compared to, to what miners do. So what va validators need is a, we need a different way to keep these validators honest. And that way is through stake. So sometimes people call validators stakers. They try and use that term interchangeably. But at the core of that is validators at least on Ethereum, are staking a, a large amount of ETH. They're staking 32 ETH, which I haven't checked the, the prices as of late, but it's a significant amount. And if they do try and cheat the network, if they do propose a block that goes against the rules of the network, that they're trying to confuse the network, trying to attack the network or change the validity of the chain, there is a potential that that amount of stake that they've put into the network gets slashed. So it's a very different way of keeping actors honest. For miners, you are you are expending a lot of cost up front. And that cost kind of keeps you honest. But for validators, what you're doing is you're you're locking up your capital and you're letting the network kind of hold on to it. And the fear of having that stake slashed is what keeps you it, honest. It's so you yeah. mentioned it so you you have to put up right now at around sixteen hundred dollars in ETH. You're putting up a minimum to be a, a validator fifty one thousand US dollars. And mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of like a security deposit, huh? The risk is if you do something untoward to the network, if you vote bad, if you try to approve uh, invalid blocks, you lose part of your security deposit. Exactly, exactly. And so this this mechanism for proof of stake is seen, one of the benefits of it is that it is more ecologically friendly. It has 
better for the ESG narrative um, because you're not putting in so much energy just to build a block. You're being randomly selected by the network to build a block. And the reason why you can be trusted to to make sure that that block is is correct and is valid is because you've already invested, you know, a certain amount of stake to the network. Right. And for Ethereum, I think the original idea was, okay, we have this mining consensus protocol that is already finalizing transactions, progressing blocks. We should move all the applications and the users to a new consensus protocol, to a proof of stake network and blockchain. But the concern, there's a significant amount of complexity around that because what is that moving process going to look like? Ethereum over the past couple of years has just skyrocketed in terms of active addresses, total value locked. I think the the amount of value that has grown on Ethereum, the amount of activity that has grown on, on Ethereum has made the vision to just simply move users and applications and value to another new chain infeasible, very difficult to do. So instead of moving users on the current Ethereum chain to a new proof of stake blockchain, developers had thought of this this alternative idea where you launch the proof of stake version of Ethereum and you simply fuse that version of Ethereum to the existing Ethereum. So one of the cool things about the merge is that it doesn't impact the application layer of Ethereum. Hmm it really only impacts how blocks are finalized. So as the current Ethereum blockchain is progressing blocks, it'll communicate those blocks back to the consensus layer of Ethereum, which is the beacon chain, and the beacon chain will start to take over the responsibility of of finalization. So that question of, you know, why is it that Ethereum has a parallel proof-of-stake blockchain, and why is it that we're going down this roadmap of of merging together the blockchains rather than simply upgrading the existing proof-of-work chain? I think it really comes down to simplicity and it comes down to how do we do this upgrade in a way that doesn't result in downtime Mm -hmm. and doesn't result in disruptions to a network that has just grown so much quicker than I think core developers had anticipated when they first launched Ethereum. And I think that's also why we've seen a lot of delays to this upgrade because the value of this chain and the amount of user activity on it has made it so that, you know, this upgrade, when it happens, has to be done in a way that's that's very airtight, that's very poses the least minimal amount of of damage and of of risk to the users and to the applications. So I think I, I missed some questions. Yeah. No, is actually there I, any questions on that. I what think you, you think? did <laughs> I think you did all three, actually. That was great. Um that was really good. So one thing that I find odd about crypto in general mm-hmm. is that like the problem that they're trying to solve is the problem of like how do you do trustless transactions like two parties don't trust each other how can technology you know get in there and make it so that people can transact with one another in a you know in in a way that in a protected way but at the same time it feels like so much of it is like or at least especially in the ethereum case so much of it is built on consensus it's like two parties can't trust each other but we trust the system as a whole to reach a consensus and that's basically how, you know, proof of stake is working. How how do they actually get to that consensus? And what happens if, like, one validator in a transaction rejects a block? Consensus really is at the core of, of these technologies. It's a really good question because these systems are meant to be trustless. It's meant to... Uh, cut out the middlemen, um, like you said. And for proof of work consensus protocols, that trustless 
uh, interaction between miners validating and and earning rewards from block production is actually much simpler than proof of stake consensus protocols because proof of stake consensus protocols don't rely on an external good. It doesn't rely on energy. It just relies on an internally created asset like ETH. Like you have to assume that ETH is a worthwhile asset for proof of stake to work. So that question of, you know, when a validator rejects a transaction or when a validator creates a block that all the other validators think is false or or goes against the rules of the network. Mm-hmm. That's something that the protocol level of a of Ethereum as a proof of stake blockchain is automatically checking for. So there are certain rules around how you can propose blocks. So one of the ways that you prevent against double spends, basically like somebody saying that I spent $5 and I can spend another $10 from the same address and and not change like the account balance, that is prevented by the network basically checking for double block proposals. Like if a validator were to were to propose two blocks at the same time, that's like a slashable event. That's something where the stake that they've put into the network gets reduced. And there's also other ways in which validators can keep each other honest, even if those automatic rules aren't able to catch all the activities. So this kind of goes into the censorship question of like, let's just say we've noticed that a certain validator continues to reject transactions from an address that's on the OFAC sanctions list. Validators can coordinate to basically like blacklist those malicious validators. Hmm. Because when you've put your stake into the network, you've also told the entire network that, hey, this is my validator ID. This is my address. You are no longer like an anonymous uh, stakeholder. Whereas for, I think, miners, when you're dedicating hash rate or hash power to uh, basically computational energy to the network, that kind of labeling system is is harder to do. But for validators, once you've put locked in your 32 ETH to the, to the network, it's held by the network and it's also identified by the network. So another way in which validators keep each other on its outside of these like automatic rules is this ability to kind of put bad behaving validators out of the network. Now, this requires social consensus. This would require some sort of an upgrade, some sort of a, a way for everybody to coordinate against those those validators. But that's kind of like another final resort where I think it helps to to understand like how is how is this network coming to consensus? Like initially, it's like these rules, these pro- pre-programmed rules that are part of the protocol. But sometimes like rules can't always catch all of the malicious behavior. Um, and in the case where you're not able to, to catch the malicious behavior, there's also this additional step that you can take. Um, sometimes it's called social slashing, hmm. um, where validators can basically like remove certain bad acting validators from the network and slash their stake, even though they haven't necessarily gone against the technicalities of the rules, Mm. but they can just kind of like coordinate to do that. So so I think this really gets to what was going to be my next question. And it's one of the criticisms of proof of stake is, okay, most people, probably I assume most people who own some ETH don't have 32 of them or don't have $51,000, but it doesn't mean they can't participate in staking. And if I, my understanding is like, okay, take some random person, buys a few ETH, leaves it on Coinbase. Coinbase can then be itself 
a huge validator of, uh, of ETH. But talk to us about the risk of a few mega validators, because I think when you, the essentially the undermining of decentralization, such that, okay, there's, I think there's something called Lido, there's Coinbase, probably a few others, but the, I, the risk of everyone just putting their money with a couple, and then you just have a couple public, well-known entities who are in theory, like have, you know, dealing with the laws of their land, the law enforcement of the countries they operate in and the executives of these companies, a handful of entities with an incredible amount of stake teeth and therefore network power under their control. It's a big concern. I definitely have to say that it's always been known this potential for a lot of stake to to become controlled by centralized entities like Coinbase, like Lido. But I think the recent sanctions against Tornado Cash were just like a wake up call for the community. And because of that, there has been a lot of conversation around what would happen if, you know, these entities started to censor transactions. I think first, it's not totally clear that these exchanges and these centralized staking providers will need to. But in the event that they do, we shouldn't, I guess, like understate the role of independent validators in the system. Okay. So if by chance there's a transaction that Coinbase, Lido starts to censor, they, they're not going to include it in a block. Eventually, the network will pick a independent validator mm. to propose a block. And that independent validator will not be judging transactions by are they on the OFAC sanctions list or are they not? They'll just be picking it from the public mempool. But let's just say, you know, for the sake of argument that 100% of validators, that not even 5%, not even, yeah. you know, 20% or 15% of validators are even independent. In that case, there can be changes to the protocol made so that a certain amount of transactions are kind of enforced by validators to include into their block. This comes back down to another kind of area of discussion, which is around OFAC compliant relays. I don't want to get too technical to this, but sorry, let's hear. I don't. I think we said at the beginning. I think relay was one of the <laughs> words that I don't know what it means. So let's go for it. Okay. Well, great. Um, <laughs> so relays are basically a third-party software that validators will connect to in order to earn additional rewards on the blocks that they create. So you get a certain amount of reward for just producing the block. You also get rewards through transaction fees. These are additional amounts of ETH that people can add to their transactions for greater priority. They're sometimes called priority fees. And there's also MEV, maximal extractable value, which is what happens oh, yeah. when uh, transactions are ordered in a certain way that allows for arbitrage, allows for sandwiching, basically profits from positioning trades, m usually decentralized finance trades in a very specific way. So if so, validators are not uh, super savvy in identifying decentralized in identifying opportunities for MEV. Validators are really, you know, operators that we want to assume are just running a piece of software. They're, they're just running the the consensus protocol of Ethereum as is, and they're just sitting back, like earning the interest on their 32 ETH. Um, but if they wanted to earn additional, they can connect to a relay, which is this third-party software that connects block builders to validators. And block builders are the ones that are interacting with searchers, which are very highly specialized users that are able to look at the mempool and bundle transactions in a profitable way. And these block builders, they construct a block. They construct a very profitable block that gives more in 
in terms of rewards than just a regular block that validators would create on their own. So some of these relays are operated by entities like Flashbots. And Flashbots has publicly and has been for a very long time compliant with regulatory laws and has said that, you know, we are an entity that will be censoring transactions that are on the OFAC list or transactions from addresses that are on the OFAC list. And they're kind of a major, they're going to be one of the major relay operators. But there are other relay operators like BlocksRoute that have said that, you know, we'll operate relays that validators can, can connect to that won't be censored. And going back to the to the hypothetical that like all these relays are suddenly censored, like let's just say there's not even yeah. one, then validators can enforce something called the CR list, like censorship resistant list. This is a technology that's still in the works, but is something that developers could potentially roll out if they see that, you know, all validators or all relays and MEV extraction is just kind of going to a, a specific relay like Flashbots that's, you know, censoring transactions and it's very difficult for validators to include, even independent validators, to to stay competitive, to earn MEV, um, and to do so in a way that's censorship resistant. What developers can release and what they're considering as a as a potential solution is implementing CR lists, which are a portion of the block that validators stuff with transactions directly from the public mempool. So instead of receiving from a relay an entirely pre-built block that's already censored that validators themselves can only accept or reject, they're able to enforce, you know, a portion of that block, you must include these transactions. So it takes away the power of block building and of censoring transactions away from the block builder. Um, because there is this assumption that because the validators, the validator base of Ethereum um, won't be completely, completely controlled by these like centralized entities, we want to keep the power and keep the the ability to like include transactions more in the hands of validators than in the hands of these other potentially more centralized entities. By the way, Tracy, you know, in addition to the merge itself, I know like for a, at least like a couple of years or a year, I've been getting tweets about how we had to do an episode on MEV and like, this, <laughs> which I kind of think is like, might be like the crypto version of a uh, payment for order flow or things like that. Christine's answer there was a reminder that that's probably going to be ha have to be a whole separate episode at some point. Maybe we should just do an all thought series where we go through like every term. I mean, we probably sort of should have. one by one. We probably should. I, some of these terms are kind of like weird. Like, I'd, I'm going to ask you. I have to be careful how I pronounce this at some point. But Christine, I'm going to ask you about sharding um, later in the yes, conversation. For sure. But okay, before we move on, just on the censorship centralization issue, I'm curious what the Ethereum people have said about this, because one of the unusual things about Ethereum versus a network like Bitcoin is that you actually have a figurehead in the form of Vitalik Buterin. And I'm curious what he's what he said on this issue, because I think most crypto people are ideologically opposed to centralization and middlemen and aligning themselves with government requirements like sanctions and things like that. But at the same time, the more we talk about this, the more you could kind of argue that Ethereum is sort of going mainstream mm. and maybe refining itself so that it better fits into the existing financial and legal system. And that could also be a strength. So I'm wondering what they've said on this issue. It's a great question. I think that the community, especially in 
in the aftermath of what happened of the sanctions against Tornado Cash, we've seen a lot more. I've seen a lot more like segmentation, a lot more disagreement, I think, in the Ethereum community about what is the best way forward. There are people in the Ethereum community that are a lot more cypherpunk, a lot more to the vision of what the Bitcoin community is, that even the slightest amount of censorship on Ethereum should be condemned. If, if it, Even if it's only Coinbase, even if it's only Lido, those entities should be punished and should be you know, removed from the network. I think that's a very extreme view. And most Ethereum core developers, and I think, I mean, I don't speak for Vitalik, but I, I would assume that him too, most have landed in this middle ground of even if there is centralization, even if there is censorship happening by these these exchanges, so long as there's even a small amount of independent validators that are processing transactions, these non-compliant transactions will get into the Ethereum blockchain eventually. And that means that Ethereum is kosher, that Ethereum can still be considered like a censorship resistant network. And then I think you can go to the other extreme where, you know, very big entities, major entities in the sense of like, they're huge figureheads, I guess, in the in the in the Ethereum community. And that's entities like Flashbots that are very open about the way that they are compliant and about the way in which they don't see a future in which they're operating you know, in like North Korea or like places in which U.S. sanctions don't matter. So just very prag pragmatic and, and realistic, I think, but not but like not trying to fight the powers, like not trying to to really rock the boat by choosing a different path. And so I think there's this tension, this tension between even the middle ground of developers and of individuals that want to preserve the censorship resistance of the network, but have to face the realities of like these big players that are core to the infrastructure of yeah. Ethereum, like core to what Ethereum is today. Like you can't necessarily just cut off all the exchanges. You can't necessarily just like cut off Flashbots because they literally built the software for how validators are going to earn MEV. So in that future, you know, you have to negotiate, you have to think about other third ways. And there's actually a really great talk by Vitalik, who recently went to the Stanford Blockchain Conference about how he foresees different ways to decentralize the block building community. And so Really, I think developers have landed on like, how do we improve the situation? How do we decentralize Ethereum further? But just recognizing that in the short term and in the medium term, there's a high potential that transactions will be censored and that Ethereum as a staking community, as like a validator community, will be controlled majority by these regulated entities, which is a pretty, I think, alarming fact. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. 
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm thinking back to something you said earlier about this idea of like social slashing, such that yeah. a theoretical validator, even if they didn't technically break consensus mechanism rules, could potentially lose some of their coins if the other validators voted in such a way. And, you know, going back again, you know, it's like Vitalik himself could say anything he wants, but Vitalik doesn't have to deal with like Gary Gensler and Vitalik doesn't have to deal with Treasury. Brian Armstrong, on the other hand, does, right? And so Brian Armstrong and his shareholders. Are there any attacks? And I use attack liberally. I don't mean a hack, but I mean, are there any like attacks that essentially work through the social slashing mechanism such that the government, some government somewhere or the U.S. government or the Treasury specifically can do something damaging to the Ethereum network through these entities? And, you know, is there a form of social slashing that Brian Armstrong might have to do or might have to push for potentially in some theoretical future where it's not about penalizing a entity that broke consensus mechanism rules, but something that they have to do like sort of like at behest of a government. Like would the government potentially right, like, tell Coinbase, like, hey, like could you censor yes. these transactions? Yeah, something or if sen- it's technically possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because right, like attacks on a any blockchain are difficult. Like it's difficult. It would be difficult for a government to attack the Bitcoin blockchain in part just because it would be hard for a government to acquire the hash power potentially to acquire enough chips such that it could take control of the network or execute a 51% attack or something like that but again if like you know coinbase ends up as the dominant staker or the dominant validator and coinbase has to uh go by all these rules. Is there something that they, uh, the government in a future scenario could pressure Coinbase to do from a sort of like social consensus standpoint that other members of the community might view as being uh, damaging to the integrity of the chain? Yeah, I think in that case, like where Coinbase does enforce like these regulations from a government authority that the entire community doesn't also agree yeah. with, it would cause a split. It would cause a split in the mm. chain of Ethereum, versions of Ethereum that are compliant and non-compliant. But I think that would also undermine like the very value of Ethereum. So it's almost like thinking through, like doing this thought process of what a social slashing event could look like and the split that it would cause should deter any proponent or like anybody who's thinking of of doing this because it, it might like irreparably Right. Damage, well, like the value of the chain. So a good an, an example, perhaps I'm thinking of is like, what if the government said Uniswap and other DeFi exchanges are illegal stock markets that are unregulated by the SEC? Coinbase, can you make sure that you don't validate any transactions that interact with these DeFi exchanges, which would be like a, a, a massive rupture because DeFi, of course, is huge for and crucial to mm-hmm. how Ethereum works. But one could imagine, say, like, you can't be processing transaction for a a, a a rogue stock exchange or something like that, which would be a kind of, uh, you know, attempted at imposing a very severe kinds of censorship. What happens then? 
And how would how does the network heal or find a way to route around such a uh, big entity being told by the government that it can no longer process DeFi transactions? I think ideally, I mean, this is very yeah. like an ideal sentiment. I don't know if this would actually happen, but ideally, users of Ethereum recognize that this is not appropriate or like is not behavior that they should support and yeah. they take away their stake from Coinbase. Like they don't stake right. through Coinbase. Like as a staking provider, Coinbase falls and, right. you know, other decentralized staking providers like Rocket Pool and potentially Lido down the road if they do fully decentralize. Yeah. That these are the staking providers that step up. But of course, this requires a great deal of com like cohesion among like the community and like a, a shared belief and a shared value of, hey, like we... Ethereum only makes sense if it's censorship resistant. Ethereum yeah. only makes sense if staking providers can't um, can't actually censor transactions. And I think there's technologies that are being looked at, like zero knowledge proofs, mm -hmm. to try and obfuscate even the contents of a transaction so that the power of validators to even know what kind of transactions they're validating is, is completely out of their control. But of course, I, I recognize that that's not the reality today and that Coinbase does have the ability to to build their own blocks and include whatever transactions they want as validators, validator node operators. And in this case, I think it really is up to the Ethereum community to to choose staking through providers that they are confident um, uphold like the values and the ethos of the community. But what complicates even this is that right now you're not able to withdraw stake from staking providers. Right. Um, it's that functionality is not enabled yet on Ethereum. It will probably be enabled, you know, at minimum, but like six to 12 months after the merge happens. And so that interim where, you know, we've already seen a lot of stake go to Coinbase and a lot of stake go to Lido. I think the question remains of how users can coordinate. And one of the ways is, you know, again, like like we talked about social slashing, but I, I, I definitely, I, I think that kind of possibility is more a deterrent. Like, I don't think that it ever really comes down to it. I think it comes down to Coinbase censoring and users not being able to withdraw their stake and basically more independent validators yeah. being spun up to try and ensure that other Trans that all these transactions that are that are non-compliant still get included in the blockchain and arguing to regulators that, hey, even if I censor transactions, it doesn't mean that Ethereum as a blockchain is any more like regulatory like, compliant, that these transactions are still going to get included one way or the other. And that, you know, from like a, a profit point of view, like it doesn't make sense for us to even continue mm -hmm. as a staking provider. So like kind of argue that as a staking provider, it, it, it doesn't make sense for us to continue to censor transactions because they're going to get included into the chain one way or another. Right. And I think a very similar issue we saw with with certain Bitcoin mining pools back in the day censoring transactions and those mining pools quickly being condemned by the Bitcoin community and kind of like social of social pressure changing how their policies work. But I think hopefully, you know, a similar thing could happen in Ethereum. But again, as I mentioned, there's like those degrees and those schisms that are being created where certain big players in Ethereum don't actually like fully subscribe to the cypherpunk vision. Right. And I think in that case, it's it's not 100% clear how cohesively the Ethereum community will act. Tracy, by the way, 
Zero knowledge cryptography. Well, before I forget, another whole episode. I think we got to talk about. It. Anyway. I feel like every answer you give, Christine, and they're very good answers, but like they just throw up a billion more questions. So In I'm wondering, heads, yeah. you know, what happens like if a bunch of validators decide to kick out Coinbase for censoring transactions? Yeah, that, like the CFTC is asking for. Then are they immediately in violation of the CFTC or U.S. law or something like that? Right. But Okay, maybe a slightly less thorny topic. How do you judge the success mm. of the merge? Is it like price of Ethereum goes up, number of transactions go up, gas fees go down? I don't even know if this has any impact on gas fees. That would be interesting to, to hear from you about. But like, It doesn't. Oh, okay. So <laughs> what are you looking at when, when we're deciding whether or not this was a successful exercise? I actually take the very minimalistic point of view. I only want the chain to finalize. That's it. I don't care about the price. I don't, I'm not looking at Ethereum. Um, I'm not looking at Ethereum addresses. I'm not looking at transaction activity. Really, for me, like what I deem as a successful merge is that after that the proof of stake blockchain fuses together with Ethereum mainnet, and that version of Ethereum finalizes in that it is able to progress through epochs, like be able, to, be able to verifiably create new blocks, come to consensus. There's a really, uh, this is a shameless plug, but there's this report that I've written on how to watch the merge hmm. um, that you can find on galaxy.com. But it, it illustrates that what you're looking for is basically the progression of two epochs, which are... Um, they're intervals of time. And in order for an epoch to finalize, you need at minimum like two thirds of active validators attesting to that epoch, saying that the transactions and the blocks that were completed in that epoch are all kosher and are all good. Once you have, have had two epochs of that, you consider the network finalized because after that finalization point, it's very hard to revert the transactions or the blocks that had been created before that finalization point. So really what I'm looking for is just to see the chain finalized because it means and the reason why is because it means that the merge and the technical shift from just swapping out your consensus protocol has worked it it doesn't say anything about how you know popular that upgrade was how traders and the users view this change of proof of stake it just it just says that hey this swapping of this transition from proof of work to proof of stake worked. This very risky upgrade that requires two different hard forks worked. That transactions and blocks are continuing to be processed. And that like if you were to send a transaction on Uniswap, if you were to send ETH to another person, you now don't have miners like processing those transactions. You actually have validators doing it behind the scenes. Mm. And that functionality is is good to go. And that functionality we don't have to worry about it breaking anytime soon. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I just have one more short question, and it's a question that I'm thinking about a particular Twitter user. So Dan, who's under Dan Matashevsky at, at CMS Holdings, he always DMs me and he says, I love odd lots, but you guys are so <laughs> negative all the time. It's always gloom. And we've spent a lot of time talking about like risks of the merge and, you know, d- centralization and censorship. Other than the decrease in electricity consumption, talk to us like, what's the exciting thing here? What's the good thing besides that, that this is going to open up in your view and the long term Ethereum roadmap? What's the what's the positive here? This is going to sound very bearish, but there's not actually too much. <laughs> there's not too much. Well, we tried, Joe. Um, <laughs> yeah, I tried. Dan, no, no, I'm no. sorry if you're I listening. Mean, <laughs> you better be, because I asked a question think, just for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. I think one thing is, you know, the validators that have been, you know, so faithfully on the beacon chain earning this issuance. It's a very small issuance in comparison to what miners get. But then again, validators aren't expending a lot of energy. So, of course, you're not going to get that much. Validators, one thing they can look forward to is they're going to start earning transaction fees, priority fees, and they're also going to start earning MEV. So that kind of reward, which, you know, compared to their the network issuance they get, which is locked, they can't actually move that around. They can start moving around and and realizing the the fees from transaction from transactions in MEV they can start you know sending that over to exchanges they can they'll actually start earning that so i think that's kind of a positive for validators and that it just becomes more profitable to run one and then the other thing i think about ethereum price is that you've got a massive supply drop you know, right. all of the supply that's going to Ethereum is going to is going to drop from around 5% to 0.5%. And in addition to that, you've still got coin burns happening. So that 0.5% in times of, of high network activity will very likely drop to a negative number where the total supply is actually contracting. And, and so you've got, you know, a bunch of users that are locking up 32 ETH. And then you've got a, you know, issuance of the network dropping significantly i think the the liquidity of of eth i'm not i'm not really a trader but like that the supply the supply going down i think will will have a positive impact on eth price over time and i think that's something that people really look forward to and that eth will become i don't like this term but quote unquote ultrasound money you it's know instead term. of having yeah. like a supply it really is though a supply limit you know you've got this supply that's shrinking over time obviously the esg narrative of ethereum will, will continue to to thrive and comparison to Bitcoin, I think there's going to be a lot more um, narrative around, you know, the way that you mint your NFTs, the way that you do all these things are no longer as energy intensive as they used to be. But I think for one of the reasons why I say like all of this isn't all that positive, um, which it is, it is very positive, is that I've been really waiting for a long time around Ethereum scalability. 
And the merge really doesn't do very much for Ethereum scalability at all. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to the fact that after the merge, developers will really focus uh, on on scalability. And I think that's one of the things like developers have just been so focused on pulling off this upgrade. After this is done and 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 out the door, I'm really looking forward to developers tackling some of the other big issues on Ethereum, like account abstraction and 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 scalability and um, stake ETH withdrawals, et cetera, et cetera. What is sharding? <laughs> <laughs> We've come full circle. Yeah, well, no, I, but I, okay, I, I honestly have zero idea. It's a D in but sharding. I, I, there's a D, yes. It, uh, podcast pitfalls. Um, sharding. So I see people on Reddit talk about this a lot. They're like, oh, who cares about the merger? What I'm really excited about is sharding, which, again, sounds terrible. But could you just explain what that is? For sure. I'm going to give a high-level overview, and then I'm going to uh, give a shout-out to a really great report around sharding. So sharding originally... <laughs> Sorry. Sharding originally... <laughs> I don't know why, but when you say... I've never thought of the term sharding as weird or as, like, strange. But now that you say Until that it's Tracy. a strange term... Yeah. Yeah, you know why? I'm, I'm it's because everyone, everyone in crypto, they're not talking to each other. They're just writing. And right, if you yes. write shard, it's fine. Mm. But as soon as you start saying it out loud... This is such a good... Everyone's going to laugh about language, how different it is. <laughs> if it's it, oh, such an insightful point. So sharding originally, the idea of it was, look, Ethereum, the Ethereum blockchain is massively has this limited transaction throughput. It the block space of Ethereum, which is, you know, there's a certain number of transactions that can fit into a block. And these blocks are what get processed and built on top of one another. And you can't stuff a block more than its limit. You can increase like the the size of a block so that it can include more transactions. But if you do that, then it becomes more computationally intensive for miners or validators to propagate that block throughout the network. And so you have a higher chance of chain splits occurring. You basically increase like the load on validators and miners. When they're running a node, you have to have very sophisticated software to be able to continue to propagate this very, very heavy blocks throughout the network. So uh, there's a good rationale for why you want to keep the size of blocks manageable for an ordinary node. It helps with the decentralization of the network. But anyway, so you've got a limited amount of transactions that you can include in a block. And if there's very, very high amount of transactions waiting to get included, then, you know, you, you have very high fees, you've got long wait times. What if we were able to partition the blockchain so that instead of blocks being confirmed by this single Ethereum blockchain, you have mini blockchains, hmm. also called shards, that are all processing the transaction load of Ethereum in parallel together. So you've got like, let's just say for hypothetically, like 64 mini blockchains that are all looking at the transaction mempool of Ethereum, which is this public space where everybody sends their unconfirmed transactions. And these miners and these validators on these shards are picking out, you know, transactions from there and they're all working together to to progress the, the Ethereum blockchain as a whole. So that greatly greatly improves the transaction throughput of Ethereum and the scalability of Ethereum. However, it's an extremely complex design. <laughs> 64 mini blockchains or even yeah, and even like thinking about how like transaction atomicity, atomicity, I think I'm saying that wrong. But basically like how would you be able to communicate 
like the finalization of one transaction on a specific shard to another shard? And is there latency between that communication? So basically, that was the original idea for sharding. But again, like the complexities around sharding, the many unanswered questions around how transaction execution would work atomically throughout the whole network, those questions started to change how Ethereum developers think about sharding. And so now that roadmap and that vision is is scrap. Ethereum developers, as a side note, has gone through many, many, many different iterations of how they think they're going to scale the blockchain. And now they've landed on this other idea, which is very much focused on modularity. So instead of having transactions all execute and all finalize on the same chain, what if we abstracted away the burden of transaction execution to a layer two? And with a technology, technologies like zero knowledge, technology like optimism, which are, you know, different types of roll-ups. I know I'm using a lot of technical terms No, these here, are but all future episodes. We're, we're writing them yeah, all down for, yeah, for the inevitable I, series. I, I hope... <laughs> These are these are good for for the good for deep dives. But as at a high level, what if you abstracted away some of the responsibility of executing the transactions to a different network, and that network can batch together and compress those transactions, and then only verify like the proof of that batched transaction to Ethereum. Right. So that like greatly frees up the transaction in the block space of Ethereum because now not all transactions are finalizing on Ethereum. You've got batches of transactions that are finalizing on a layer two and you're just sending down the proofs of those compressed transactions to Ethereum. And so dank sharding is a new iteration of sharding that really focuses on making the cost of rollups, the cost of these batch transactions cheaper and introducing a lot more modularity to the Ethereum wow. blockchain and I'm sorry, achieving scale of yes. Did you say dink sharding? Yes. So that's actually the sharding roadmap for Ethereum now. And it, it doesn't really have anything to do with sharding, like the original idea for sharding. And this is where I plug in on um, John Charbonneau's Hitchhiker's Guide to Ethereum, where he talks a lot about this. But yes, you're right. Dank sharding is a weird <laughs> term, like I know, but that word. is. That is the real version of sharding that is more likely to be implemented today than the version of sharding that I explained before. All right. So we have sharding, dank sharding, layer twos, optimistic rollups versus zero knowledge proofs, <laughs> the Ethereum narrative versus Bitcoin, MEV. You've given so many future episodes for us to now build on. Christine, Kim, thank you so much. You're the perfect guest for coming on. We say that, but that was so clear and so good. And I know people have told us we need to do merge, merge, and I'm glad we didn't just like rush it. We got a great guest. So thank you so much, Christine, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. This is lovely. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Christine. That was really interesting. And I don't say that about every crypto podcast yeah. episode that we do. So thank that you. Was great. Dank sharding. The the future of all of finance is going to be whether the the, whether these the, coders like, can make dank sharding work. It's like a real word. It's one word. No, dink I know, sharding. but this gets to a real point, which is like if you're if you're portraying yourself as the future of finance or yeah. the future of money, like can't we get some different terms, like things that the, people could say aloud in a meeting? The one that has to go is ultrasound money. You can't be talking about well, that. Has to go. 
That well, was really bad. It also begs the question of like, if you were going to create ultra ultrasound money, could you just like evaporate it, just burn it into oblivion? Like, is that the soundest just money there is? Just left. yeah, one. just the one, the one coin. Okay. On a serious note, I I thought that conversation was really interesting, and mostly because it gets to that fundamental tension, which we kind of alluded to in the intro, which is if this is technology, if this is software, software is supposed to adapt to the needs of the people using it or the Mm -hmm. needs of the market using it. And so it throws up these questions of like how best to adapt. What are you sacrificing as you try to reduce energy usage and all those kinds of thorny questions? Yeah, I think Ethereum is in an interesting position straddling the sort of two worlds, right? Because it was sort of, you know, it's it's one of the earlier chains. And as Christine mentioned, it has, there is still a significant faction that has that sort of OG cypherpunk mm-hmm. anti-censorship impulse. On the other hand, it is a more corporate chain and VCs, you know, that's what they, they've put a lot of money and uh, financial institutions experiment. Then there is like the pure software and, you know, some of these newer chains like Solana, et cetera. It's like, that's just like a company launch that. I mean, technically the company maybe doesn't control it, but there is like, they're faster. They could probably upgrade even quicker than Ethereum. They already like started on proof of stake, et cetera. So the question is, can Ethereum sort of like navigate the sort of like the the two tensions, the sort mm-hmm. of like community decentralized cypherpunk tension with the software world? And this is a big moment in terms of, uh, I guess, navigating those two worlds. Yeah, it really seems like that's what they're trying to do, yeah. right? So it'll be fascinating to see what happens. And then, of course, if you know, if someone like the CFTC, to yeah. use your example, were to come in and say something and you were to get a validator like Coinbase who yeah. was kicked off the network, like it would just be fascinating to see how that consensus mechanism actually worked and then what happened to all it, the other validators. It really is interesting that the merge is happening so soon after the tornado cash Mm. sanctioning, because that's like the first time, right? Like government's like, no, we're like going after a piece of software. And so, you know, it does raise the stakes potentially for, you know, the government has done all kinds of things with crypto, but it's usually like at the fiat on-ramp level, right? They're like, okay, Mm -hmm. you need to apply KYC, AML to the money you're bringing onto the exchange. But then once once you have the coins, then the government has basically been pretty hands-free. And this is potentially a change right at a moment in which some of these big centralized entities are going to have a lot of power over the network. Yeah, I'm also just interested in the sort of like the PR aspect of yeah, all of it. If, yeah. You know, if the government says like, we don't want you to deal with North Korea or yeah. don't let a North Korean entity like mine blocks or make transactions on your blockchain. And then you have a bunch of people going like, well, no, actually, we're censorship resistant. And, you know, this is about making, you know, censorship free money and yeah. transactions and all of that. That seems like a difficult position to take, or at least a a difficult one when it comes to like broadcasting that message. Speaking of PR, I suspect that the crypto industry is going to really turn on Bitcoin fast. And they're going to say, look at this electricity guzzling blockchain. Mm. We have something that doesn't uh, guzzle electricity anymore. Penalize those proof of work people. I think that that battle is coming. The sort of the ESGification of crypto and the vilification of chains that don't move to proof of stake, I think will be a big story. Oh, I totally agree. But it's also really interesting to see Bitcoin kind of embrace that position in the system. And I think I wrote about this at one point, but Bitcoin proponents are positioning themselves basically as the anti-crypto. 
now, right? That's the foil off of which they are playing. And I, I don't know, it's just been, it's been fascinating to see that narrative be created. All right. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, we could talk about this forever. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Christine Kim. She's at Christine underscore D Kim. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.